0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Design Development brought to you by h Structural Engineering. This is your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design, and construction. I'm your host, Renz Hayes, co-founder of h lifelong learner, and I'm obsessed with high-powered organizations and the leaders that guide them. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, I can't thank you enough. Let's go. Today's guest on design development is Don Briggs. He's the co-founder and managing partner at HG80. He's the former director of development for Federal Realty Investment Trust. He worked in REITs for nearly three decades. Don is such a great guy. He has such a cool story, grew up in an army family, studied architecture, went to construction and then into development. And he really got to work on some cool development. Uh, We call this iconic retail anchored mixed use developments for a reason, one of which is Assembly Row right here in greater Boston. Don, it brings a depth of knowledge. So I'm excited to share his journey with you today and see what HG80's got in store for us. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Don Briggs. Please join me in welcoming Don Briggs. Don, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Rance. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to unpack your career and your focus on iconic retail-anchored mixed-use developments. For those that don't know you, Don, could you do us a favor and give us a a quick intro to who you are and what you're focused on today with HG80?
1: Sure, sure. So, I guess I'm best known probably for developing Assembly Row here in Boston. Uh, I ran development for Federal Realty for roughly about 15 years and was with Federal Realty for 18, uh, 18 total. So they're headquartered out of DC. I moved up here to Boston in 2009, uh, a few years after we bought Assembly Row opened the office here and grew it, uh, but I ran development for Federal Realty Nationally. So uh, developed a number of uh, retail strip shopping centers across the country, as well as uh, a handful of large neighborhoods, just like Assembly
0: Was that a development philosophy? Let's call Assembly Row. For those that don't know, it's a few million square feet, multiple buildings, kind of a large, it's like creating its own community. How would you describe Assembly Row?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's basically a new neighborhood in Boston, right? It's, it's right in, it's in Somerville, so right outside of Charlestown. And what we saw there was a big industrial site with a, with a train line that drove by, but a road by, but never stopped. And we had the ability to really just unlock seventy plus or minus acres for large scale mixed use development. So it's, it's a new neighborhood. And when did you craft this type of view? Was this like a
0: development philosophy? Did you go around the United States looking for this type of opportunity close to a tier one city? Like When did this idea come to fruition?
1: You know, for Federal Realty, they were really on the forefront of misuse development really before anybody else back in the mid-90s. They bought A handful of what I would call sort of quasi-retail industrial assets in Bethesda, Maryland, which is sort of a first-tier suburb inside the Beltway in DC. And they sort of cut their teeth trying to develop a mixed-use neighborhood down there. I joined them after they'd done a phase or two there, and they had started a really large mixed-use neighborhood in San Jose, California called Santana Row. Santana Row has become one of the most iconic mixed-use neighborhoods where folks just go to visit it. I don't know. There's a there's a property in Atlanta called Avalon, which was developed really in the last I think before it was before the the pandemic, but after the recession. And I knew the group who did that, and the landscape architect had called me because they went out to Santana Row to essentially measure all the dimensions of Santana Row so they could replicate it in Avalon, and it's been um, tremendously successful. So Federal, I think, was before most of the peers relative to building, I call it immersive places in a first-tier, second-tier suburb around major cities. And probably why I joined them is they were... Moving in that direction. And, and since then, we've developed, I think, six or seven large scale mixed lease-use neighborhoods, including those two I just described.
0: Wow. So, you guys did six or seven of these kind of large-scale. And I like how you qualified that concept. You look around a tier one city, or looking in a secondary market, and I guess looking for land that you think is going to be underutilized for its highest and best use in a 10, 20-year period. Because these, you can't just like come up with this idea and start building buildings in a year, right? There's a longer process, I imagine.
1: No, no. I mean, Federal Realty had the good fortune of owning a really well-located, what I call first-tier suburb, suburban portfolio of retail assets. Largely auto-oriented retail assets, but very well-located. And Federal Realty started them at, I guess, the late, mid to late 60s. So a lot of these assets, the the neighborhoods sort of grew up around them. Right. So if you just take a look at Assembly Row, where people are maybe more familiar with here in Boston, you know, it was sort of an isolated site, but it's massive density all around it and very low density on that particular track. Think if that was a grocery shopping center or a power center at some point in time, you have all this density, you have mass transit available to it. And Federal Realty and and my team basically looked at a lot of the assets that we owned and or looked to acquire retail anchor centers where we could transform them. So Assembly Row was Assembly Mall. It was a, you know, strip retail box center when we bought it that we were that was being repositioned. And that's in essence what we bought was the retail shopping center next to a bunch of real estate that had an big opportunity. And so as you look at how demographics evolve in those little submarkets, this opportunity for creating sort of an immersive, walkable place, essentially bring the city to the suburbs. Was was really what, what what drove that sort of investment strategy and development strategy?
0: I'd like to dig into the details there a little bit. Was this just one piece of the land? So you took the leap of faith that you were going to be able to acquire the surrounding assets and kind of create the ultimate value, but you hedged your risk because you got a good land basis and it made sense to own them all anyway. Or did you wait and try to package and connect all these dots all at once?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean. One of the beauties of investing at Federal Realty, because we are a retail re, right there's a floor, right? What is the, you know, we could go buy a stabilized retail shopping center and earn a six or 7% return at that that window of time. We bought this in 2005, right? And that's a great investment, right? We're going to own it for a long period of time. We're going to, you know, grow the rents, and that in and of itself is actually why we bought that property to sell. Now, Assembly Row had a huge upside in that it came along with a handful of industrial properties. I think Good Times was part of that transaction. And the, uh, the previous owner, Taurus, had done a deal with the city of Somerville in which the city of Somerville had agreed to sort of condemn a handful of So there's industrial real estate that we could acquire if we wanted to. There was a industrial building that we did acquire, and then there was the mall. But basically, we bought it for the mall itself as an investment. When we bought it, IKEA owned like sixteen acres right next to us. Sixteen. Sixteen. And that's of ending seventy acre sites, so a pretty good percentage. Pretty good pretty good chunk of that real estate. They own the all essentially where Assembly Roasted today was owned by Ikea. So right on the water. Yeah. So what we like to tell people is we bought uh, a mall in a lawsuit because it was really bought down in a five to six year lawsuit with a local community. And we came in with an idea of, of how to resolve that. I actually sat down with the mayor. I sat down with folks at, at Mississippi Task Force at the time. And we sat down with IKEA all before we acquired it with an idea to sort of do a land swap where we would push IKEA to the back where all the industrial property was. We would capture this great real estate on the waterfront, and maybe we'd be able to get a T-stop built. So we also sat down with Congressman Capuano, who said, yeah, we can get an earmark." And with that as a background, we went ahead and closed.
0: What I'm hearing is real estate development is a lot more than just understanding the bottom line financials of a potential real estate deal. It sounds like you're mediating a lot of problems between different entities. There's political, there's put, there's community stuff involved and you end up having to show up with empathy to understand what is it that each party is actually interested in and how do you align those to create opportunity?
1: Yeah, I mean, you said it very well. That is why I became a real estate developer, right? I really enjoy the spectrum that you get to engage in from design to construction to finance to politics to community to it's just a it's just a great mixed bag of what you get to do. And if you can sort of think about things through all those different lenses, then you have the ability to maybe see something that other people don't love that. Yeah, and if you, if, you're, if you have perseverance, then maybe you can actually succeed at the other end of that. Right? <laughs> yeah, you got to have thick skin. Lots of ups and downs, right? Lots of ups and downs. Let's go
0: back to the beginning. As I prepared for our conversation today, it kind of it dawned on me that you've, life has taken you to a lot of different places around the country. So, do you mind
1: me asking, where did you grow up? Sure. So, I was an Army brat. So, my dad was in the military. And so I went to three high schools, two middle schools, four or five elementary schools. So I moved around a lot. You can see Kansas. I spent a few years in Hawaii, graduated high school in Atlanta. Did that bother you or did you just become like comfortable and
0: being in new places and meeting new people and almost like you get an opportunity to almost reinvent yourself if you move around that much?
1: You know, it's it's, you do get a chance to sort of be a chameleon, right? Um, I actually think that's helped me a little bit in my career because when you you mentioned it earlier, community, politics, designers, contractors, every one of those folks that you interact with approaches the world a little differently. And as a developer, it's your job to sort of work your way into how they think and speak and be able to speak that language while staying true to yourself, right? All that's very important. Yeah, I did get to a lot of chameleon training. It taught you how to
0: find common ground, like to your point, like how important that is, is if you're in any type of conflict deal or trying to just create opportunity, you got to find common ground with the people you're talking to.
1: Yeah, it teaches you. It teaches you to listen, right? It also teaches you to appreciate people as individuals, right? And that's that's part of it. I mean, listen, it's a different life. I I wouldn't trade it. I know a lot of people who grew up in one place. their family is still there. It's you know they have a great foothold, and I think that has its advantages. And I think that my experience had its advantages. What did you study in college? I studied architecture. So I get got a degree in architecture in, uh, at the University of Florida, and I graduated in 1991, um, back when it was the SNL crisis. So I came out when there were zero jobs for architects, um, but I had done some internships over the summers in Atlanta and it kind of figured out anyway. that so I didn't really want to be an architect uh, or I didn't want to practice architecture. You learned that from internship experience. Yeah, I mean, that, this was before CAD, right? So <laughs> yeah, I spent a couple summers yeah. on a drafting board, you know, doing toilet layouts and noting up drawings and doing things of that nature. And I was you know, that was not for me. But what I did see was that the decisions that I like to make relative to urban form, what would what do things want to be, how do you shape them? Those were all decisions that developers make. They weren't really decisions that architects Controlled. They could influence outcome, but they were responding to their clients' desires. And so I sort of knew coming out of school that I wanted to end up in the seat that I'm in, but I didn't have any business training, didn't have any business degree. And at that moment in time, I decided to go work for General Contract and learn some business skills. And so that's what I did. I spent four or five years, or five or six years down in South Florida and Central Florida working with a white tour contracting company. And Constru- what type of projects
0: did you work on in construction?
1: So I did, I renovated like two or three malls and then I built a department stores. That was pretty practical. Very retail oriented. It was actually, it actually worked out very well because I I think of retail as the place where people come together. And I've always been interested in creating places for people. So it just was fortuitous that the work that I did as a contractor was predominantly retail and that I did some theme park work. I built the African village at Animal Kingdom. And I did some work at- uh, How cool was that? And that was pretty cool. Yeah. It was different, right? And I built some work out. I did uh, some work at Islands of Adventure at Universal. I actually have, I, I want an Animal Kingdom Islands of Adventure
0: when I, I was at Disney with, I have two young children, four and six, and we took them to Disney over the last uh, year or two. The structures are completely unique. If I put myself in a general contractor's sh- seat, buying out those trades for such unique products and like what they're building, like the facade isn't the facade of a building for retail or or multifamily. Like what were some of the challenges or things that you, you learned on that job?
1: So it's fortunately well with Disney when there's heavy theming like that, like you're like the the really sculpted plaster and the weather look. Disney leads that process, so you're building uh, now you're managing their trades and you're bringing them in. But there's no way you as a general contractor can mm-hmm. enter into a contract with these theming and plaster guys because there, there's just it's no price you can put on it
0: very interesting that's smart for them to have their proprietary or to have that team kind of locked
1: in right right now what we did do is we brought in some south uh, South African team to do all the thatch work like the, the grass uh the grass roofs it was all done we imported a, a a team from South Africa and so How long was your career
0: in construction before you you navigated your way to development?
1: I think it was there for five or six years, maybe five and a half years. And I built a project for a client of mine, Cousins Properties in Atlanta. And I was actually considering to go back to get an MBA, was in the process of applying to a handful of schools and a client who had become a friend had basically just said, listen, why don't you just go up here and work for me? don't do that. I've got an opening. So I did. And I joined them, I think, in 1996 or 1997. And I actually started as a tenant coordinator. That was
0: my role. Tenant coordinator. So not necessarily development, managing tenants and existing assets.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a specific role in retail development, which is a tenant coordination role in which as you enter into leases or you do build outs for large tenants, the tenant coordinator essentially manages that process. It's like a mini construction process with a little bit of, a, of an owner's role. But within like three weeks, I was out in California. They had bought a large mall in L.A., and they were thinking about ripping the roof off of it and turning it into an open air center. So they sent me out there to work with a developer there. And within a month, I was working as a developer and no longer working as a tech board. And the, so three weeks in, you were already off to the races in a new role. Yeah. It's just because contractor was winding turn of contracting that was out there working on. So I had a relationship with the guy and I had a lot of history and looking at this kind of this kind of work. Something I'd point out to the audience in
0: this experience is you mentioned this opportunity to jump careers from construction to development came from a friendship that you built with a client, right? You never know where your next opportunity is going to be. There's another, Eric Cruz, uh, another guest in in really great business consultant here in the greater Boston area. One of the metrics he tracks, and this is probably the second time I've brought it up in a conversation, is how many friends do you have in industry? And like, how do you how do you qualify a friend? It's not just someone you like working with. It's like who can you call to just say hi to and have a conversation and have it not be about work. How many friends do you have in industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that that's exactly right. I would say, you know, again, going back to my experience as a, as an army brat, I value deeper relationships where you actually get to know people versus quantity. So I choose depth over quantity, and because I'm just I'm not the most the best at going to a big party and trying to socialize and um, meet as many people as possible. But I do like uh, deeper relationships. And I have, I think, built a number of those here in Boston and throughout the country over my career. Cousins Properties,
0: you you go to California, you kick off on this retail mall. Is that the type of development you did while you were with Cousins or what was the market sectors they focused on?
1: So Cousins was was sort of a split group. They had this retail group that was doing lifestyle centers and they had traditionally they were large office developers. So they built most of the tall office buildings and skyscrapers in and around Atlanta. Tom Cousins is legendary in Atlanta and the Southeast and they had acquired a retail company called Market Centers and the retail company was predominantly focused on the new lifestyle centers so back in the sort of mid 90s early 90s there was a trend in which they were trying to take retail out of the malls so it would be sort of a very replicated group of tenants Barnes and Noble Borders the Gap group the Limited so it was this these mall inline mall tenants the, the concept was to build a open-air center, so you reduce your operating costs, in between the mall and mom. So wherever wealthy mom lives, if you find a site that was half the distance between the mall and mom, then you could put in a, a lifestyle center with the same sort of mall tenants in a more convenient layout, but not necessarily what I would call an immersive walkable environment. It wasn't really a neighborhood. And so this is
0: really the transition from your traditional mall to the outside retail center. Thinking about that strategy, you mentioned your operating costs are less, and that's because you don't have all this common space that doesn't generate any rent that you have to condition, right? Exactly right. But your construction costs, I imagine, go up for the sprawling retail center. You have a lot more facade, a lot more exterior storefront. You have a lot more landscape and paver to do, or is that stuff that you're able to to get done efficiently during the development process?
1: I don't think it. I don't know that it's much more expensive. I think the deal is a whole lot less expensive because now you're not giving away land to anchors, right? So if you think about a mall, it's all fed by the anchors and the inline retail sort of supports the giveaway to the anchors with, with the lifestyle. So if you don't have that. So
0: anchor tenants have kind of, they have leverage in that type of development versus the outdoor shopping center is creating its own environment with a slew of tenants. And if you have those relationships- and you've proven the model, you can continue to get that, but no one tenant really has leverage over the development.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about one of the challenges with the malls today, right, is that they enter into these 100-year giveaways or 60-year giveaways for these anchor tenants where they sold the land for a dollar, right? In order to be able to get the, the project off the ground, they give all kinds of controls to those tenants. And so, the mall unwind is particularly complicated or complex as a result of how it got started because of all the leverage that. They did. But in the lifestyle centers didn't have all that right. And there's there's a few lifestyle centers in and around Boston, predominantly built by WS. They did a fa- they've done a fantastic job. Legacy Place, denim Shops, Street Shops in Dedham. I guess Lynn Marketplace, right the street in Brookline. They've done a fantastic job. Your transition from Cousins, how long were you at Cousins? I was with Cousins for about three to four years. I had uh, you know, sort of pushed the envelope with Cousins trying to see if we could. So Cousins also didn't want to do restaurants in these environments. So they wanted to do minimum food. So this was really, this was, this was very early in the gestation of these. And they absolutely did not want to do residential. And I thought we were sort of giving it away a little bit. And somebody in, the, in our group had said, you know, have you ever talked to Federal Realty? I said, no, and I didn't actually really do any research on that, but coincidentally, another friend of mine, my old superintendent at Federal Realty, at, at Whitey Turner, was close friends with a guy named Brian Spencer, who actually I ended up working with for the next 20 years at Federal. He was a consultant there, but he introduced me to a woman named Robin Mosley, who was a developer. At and she and I met. They were working on a project in Atlanta, a mixed use uh, opportunity there. She brought me on board, really, I think at the end of 1999, early 2000. And that was right at the beginning when, when, say, Tanner Row was under construction. We were building Pentagon Row, another project in DC. And that's how I came over.
0: This is another great lesson for, for the entire audience, for all of us. It sounds like the move from Parsons to Federal was really just over a development philosophy. And if I think about real estate development itself, there's a million different strategies. You can do single family homes, you can do multifamily, you can do industrial, you can do urban only, you can only do retail, you can only do restaurants. So there's there's no one way to skin a cat for lack of a better phrase. And part... Cousins had a proven model and strategy they wanted to stick to, and you had an idea of a new strategy that you wanted to test out, and you ended up finding a company that had that similar strategy that allowed you to see that through. That doesn't mean Cousins was wrong. That doesn't mean you are wrong. It just means that it was a different path, and that's okay for two people that work great together to go separate ways over different philosophies or, or ambitions, right?
1: That's exactly right. You know, I came out of school as an architect with a real interest in building community and building neighborhoods, retail environments being the place where I always believed that people came together as communities. These were the crossroads and the connective tissue in many neighborhoods. And so my experience just sort of kept marching me down that track because it was something I was always interested in. When I talk to young folks who uh, are interviewing with me or, you know, are looking for some advice about their future, I always ask them a question, which is, you know, what are you passionate, right? Right. Why do you want to be in real estate to begin with, right? Is it because you want to make up money? Is it because you want to essentially build a factory? But I'll come back to that and I'll describe that in a second. Or is it because you have some particular passion about what it is you want to build? And there's no right or wrong answer, right? It is a, what is it that you're particularly interested in? What are you passionate about? What are you motivated by? that will guide you to an opportunity that, that you will love and you'll enjoy because I've had the good fortune of being able to sort of pursue my passion and do it relatively well. had a lot of luck and a lot of opportunity along the way, but I encourage people to sort of think about that. So we come back to that factory. Great
0: question to ask. I, I would say I try to ask similar questions. You want people to understand where they're trying to go and to make sure that if they actually achieve it, it's going to make them happy or fulfilled or continue exactly. along that journey. You don't want them heading in the wrong direction.
1: Right. And self-awareness is huge. Self-awareness is key. Understanding that and knowing what your skills are or what you enjoy doing is really important. Hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to figure out. You got to sort of, you know, life is a windy road and it's Okay.
0: Cousins was a privately owned company. Is that correct?
1: Yep, Cousins is, was a was a was a REIT as well. They were privately owned, but they had actually, in the SNL crisis, went became a REIT because of all sorts of capital reasons at that. Moment. So this is back in the early nineties. That's when that crisis happened.
0: So they became a REIT in the early nineties. Yeah, late eighties, early nineties is when they converted. Yeah. I want to get into that. I don't think now is the time, but the understanding how projects are capitalized and funded from a, a REIT to the private entity, I think is a is a really interesting conversation. Continuing on your journey at Federal Realty, it, you started working on projects in DC. Are you still living in the Atlanta area at this
1: time? No, I live in so I moved to I moved to I spent 2 years in Atlanta with with Federal Realty working on a project down there and then And then I guess it was, you know, we had the dot-com bubble and that created another sort of, if you're in real estate, you will for any length of time, you you go through these expansions and contractions. And we're obviously going through a big contraction right now, right? And the dot-com bubble was another one of these, I call it a, a relatively shallow real estate recession. But what it did do is it created, you know, sort of a pulling of the reins and a pruning on Federal Realty's part. And the Atlanta project essentially got pruned and I I moved up to DC right after that and began working on a handful of projects in and around DC. A couple the power center I worked on, and then I also worked on a smaller neighborhood mixed use project in Rockville, Maryland, as well as sort of another phase of Bethesda Row, some phases out at Santana Row, and then and then another project called the Saint Village of Charlton yet. That's another one we were working on. Yeah, very cool. Could you share some insights? So
0: we talked about pruning a job in at Atlanta and then moving to D.C. to work on these. Were they just at different stages of developments? Was Atlanta already like a self-sustaining cash flowing asset that we had bigger plans? Or like what was the difference between the two?
1: So Atlanta was a new market for federal. That was probably the biggest issue. New means higher perceived risk. Yeah, higher perceived risk. We didn't really have a footprint in, in Atlanta at the time. The project we were working on was a large public-private partnership with Marta and another developer and two other developers, one being post departments, one being a group called Carter Associates. And Bell South was building a new headquarters. So it was a huge project with a lot of different parties. But it also was in Atlanta. And Federal essentially made the decision not to invest in the Southeast. And so let's pull in the reins. Focus on the markets we know, yep, we're in Northern California, we're in LA, we're in D.C., DC through New York. Had a couple small assets up here in Boston at the time, but it was primarily that sort of Northeast quarter and then LA and San Francisco. And
0: so that was the dot-com boom. So early 2000s. And then you, your team identifies the assembly row opportunity. I think you mentioned 2005. So kind of coming out of that dot-com boom.
1: Yeah. So we, we had some success at Rockville Town Center. We had some success with some of our our second and third phases on these mixed use assets. So like in two thousand two, at that same period of time, there was a transition that was taking place at federal relative to leadership. And Federal was way out over their skis on mixed use development. They had way over invested in Santana Row. It was going to be a very difficult situation. We had a transition at that point in time. We told Wall Street we weren't going to do mixed use, that we were going to focus on adding value to our existing portfolio, grocery anchor, power stamp portfolio, very well located. And we were going to do little. Base hits. You know, there was a there's actually a, sale, a, a saying of federal at the time: "Crumbs are filling." So <laughs> crumbs are filling. Walls are you. filling. So we were focused on all the crumbs that had been ignored while federal went on this mixed use agenda. All the while, we sort of talked internally and said, "But we're still going to pursue this, 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 and this." Right? We should not talk about it.
0: How did Wall Street respond to that? That change, that pivot It was hugely beneficial. Hugely beneficial. They loved hearing that. That, that that told them stability
1: simpler business plan more stable easier to understand it's a quarterly business so I can you know underwrite that a whole lot easier and it it was very well received by Wall Street probably really helped stabilize federal realty i mean when at that moment in time I think our stock was trading at 18. when I left in 2018 it had peaked at like 170 and had been gone back down to like 145. So we went on a tremendous run, right? Now, during that evolution, we did pursue some mixed use. We had some really, some real successes, right? We sort of knocked the cover off the ball on a few projects. So Wall Street became comfortable with our ability to sort of take that risk.
0: Proven track record reduces the risk of an otherwise aggressive development
1: model. Yep. We sort of shifted our focus to public-private partnerships. So was a little bit of a mitigation of the risk. We brought in partners to develop certain uses. So, like the first phase of the assembly, we brought in Avalon Bay versus developing it ourselves. So, we created land value. We sort of managed our business, I would say, more in a more disciplined manner.
0: It, did that help? Like, hit? I, I'm just thinking through owning a public asset you have quarterly earnings expectations and otherwise people start asking questions, people that ask questions get scared and people that get scared start selling and that cycle can be, can be challenging. Did this new strategy kind of give your team small wins, cash flow and kind of quarterly earnings wins that allowed you to build momentum?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, part of the beauties of Federal, I, I gotta give huge kudos to Don Wood, who was the CEO of Federal. We had sort of two business lines, right? We had this steady internal growth engine that was coming out of our really well located traditional retail opener shopping center portfolio, right? Great rent growth, little value add. And you marry that to this very lumpy but high value add mixed use development development program. And we actually got paid a premium because we had both of those going at the same time. Ooh, I like that. You got a higher multiple on your more consistent cash
0: flow because people knew you had the home run potential with your other. That's, I love that
1: strategy. There was a shift that took place in the public markets really in the late 2000s before the Great Recession, but even coming out of the Great Recession where mixed use really became a buzzword. And we were well in front of anybody else, certainly in the public markets, and both our ability to execute what we knew from from cradle to grave, not just development, but operations, leasing, all of it, right? And and so we got paid 15, 20% premium on our multiple compared to everybody else, which is mutually reinforcing if you have a complex business plan because now you have a much lower cost of capital, which allows you to sort of bridge the gaps. We were able to bridge the Great Recession as a result of that because of our cost of capital that we did pull in our range there too a little bit and focused on assembly. we focused on another big project in, in DC called Pike and Rose, which is about the same size and scale as assembly. And we focused on some transformational phases out at St. Ana Road to capitalize on some things that we'd already done. So we sort of focused on our knitting during that time timeframe.
0: Quick break from the show. Thanks for tuning in to Design Development. We're trying to help as many people as possible. So if you could subscribe and leave a review on today's episode on whatever platform you're listening, it would be a great help. It's the only way we're going to reach more people. Let's get back to the show. Today, we're launching a new business, Don. HG80. Yes. Can you t- tell us about your business partners, the vision, the strategy, why you're launching HG80? Give us the rundown.
1: Sure. So, H C A D is is, I have two partners. One is a gentleman named Chris Wallminster and the other is Tim Mount. So, Chris and I have been business partners for 20 plus years. He he was at Federal Realty for 30 years. So, while I was running development, he was running revenue. So, he ran all the leasing. At the end, towards the end of his career, he became the president of the mixed division. So, the operational side of that business and in 2018, he and I left Federal Realty together to go work for another REIT out of New York, a group called Urban Edge Properties. He became the COO. I became president of development. A couple of years later, COVID hit. I came back to Boston. He stayed on because I think there was, at that window in time, development wasn't happening. Their business plan changed, but operations was critical and important. And he just left uh, Urban Edge back at the end of 2020. And so he and I always, you know, very close. You guys were kind of a package deal, it seems. And Chris's focus was
0: retail, right? So he had big retail relationships. And when you say manage revenue, that was that leasing side of the mixed use. So he
1: ran, yeah, he ran the, all the leasing for federal realty. So he has tremendous relationships at all levels of, re, of the retail world. Grocery anchors, boxes, street retail, restaurants. So he has, you know, he could pick up the phone and call the heads of real estate at any major.
0: I'm thinking about the information arbitrage like your team can get because you can gain insights from these companies and major retail brands that also believe in you because you have a proven track record of creating these iconic retail mixed use developments that when you're looking at a new land, you can get feedback from the retail community on what they're seeing in this area. You can understand what they look for for finding an ideal location. And that information exchange, I imagine, is a huge lever.
1: It's a huge advantage, right? It's, I mean, the relationships that Chris has, both in the brokerage community and within the tenants, it's, it's tremendous, right? Such a huge asset, and you're right, that is a key component of what we will, you know, try to leverage as we move forward with HG80. My other business partner is Tim Mount. Tim Mount was the design partner for Streetworks Studio. So Streetworks has been essentially Federal Realty's design collaborator for longer than I was there, 25 plus years. So Tim and I have worked together hand in glove on all of our large mixed-use neighborhoods from a design and entitlement standpoint. So the three of us, I think, fill a lot of gaps.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. So Tim was working with you through that entire time on like the permitting and the planning and the master planning, you name it.
1: You it. Know, assembly, Pike and Rose, some projects we did down in Miami, Santana Row. He was actually he and I actually met at Santana Row. He was living out there at the time. I went out for about four or five months to help him get open, and that's where we started our relationship. In HG eighty, so your new venture. When did you officially launch? So we started talking about this back in March of this past year, and. You know, we told, we selectively told people that we knew that when we started, you know, first off launch, had, had a lot of things to look at and chase. And then we really announced it back in October and have had just a ton of inbounds. But we've got a handful of things that we're working on, both here in Boston, something in New York, and then a few things down in Florida, both in Tampa and then Miami. So Chris lives in, Chris lives in Tampa, Tim lives in New York, and I'm here.
0: Well, that makes sense for those three areas of focus, I guess, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. And we have relationships in all those markets. Is the development
0: strategy much of what you're known for? Iconic neighborhood creating, uh, mixed-use retail-anchored developments? Are you going to come out going for
1: smaller existing acquisitions and value add? Where where are you headed? So, that's a good question. You know, I think the days of doing 70-acre 5 million square foot ground up mixed use developments are challenging and certainly challenging for a group that's not as well capitalized as a federal realty. But I do think our focus is on, I would say, retail driven, experiential and mixed use events. And so you mentioned Chris's relationships. I think we have a relationship with a grocer in New York We have a handful of retail-focused folks who've asked us to both advise them and get involved in a few things. And then we're looking at a couple of what I would call existing retail environments where there are some missing teeth. They could be walkable and they could be really great nodes, particularly post-COVID. I've always been a student of how people live and how people interact and trying to create environments that respond to that. Why we're creating walkable neighborhoods in the suburbs where people didn't have that. You have to be a student if you want to see
0: opportunity.
1: You do. You do. I, I took a trip when I was in high school to to Europe. My cousin lived over there and I spent six weeks traveling out with him and four of his friends when I was 17 years old. And we my junior and senior year. I saw a completely different world, right? And that has sort of led me down this path of creating real places that people wanna spend time in. And when you
0: say like a different world,
1: like just a different way of living. Yeah, I mean, I was in Hawaii, I was in Kansas, I was in Atlanta, the suburbs of Atlanta, when I was, you know, my formative years, and you, you go to Lisbon and you go to Portugal and you go to you know Paris and Rome and Venice and Vienna, and it's a very different experience. And that's probably why I became an architect. Absolutely love that. Coming back to, you mentioned even
0: here, uh, capitalizing and, and especially you're moving now launching a private development company. You've led a career in, in REITs. Could you help walk us through the, how a REIT in a private development company and how the, the capital stack or how they fund projects differs and maybe a pro and con like on how it connects to today's economy?
1: Yep. So REITs, which I know better, frankly, than I know the private world. I mean, one of the, I'll give you just one of our thesis at HC 80 is the three of us don't come from the kingdom of the business, right? We come from the execution side of the business. And over the last 10, 15 years, pick when that mark flipped, Sometime during COVID or post-COVID, certainly when interest rates went up, if you were invested in real estate, you made money, right? You didn't really need to execute at a real estate level if you were in at a you were a real estate investor, right? And there's a lot of folks who sort of and still are kind of stumbling their way through that. They were really great capital allocators. As I look forward over the next, certainly the next five, maybe the next ten years retail, real estate, that's not just retail, but real estate execution is going to be extremely important, right? Marry that with smart capital allocation. And I think that's the business going forward. There's a lot of folks who are going to get caught because they don't know how to execute at real estate level. Well
0: said. Like, like you said, uh, a bull market, low interest rate environments can cover up a lot of
1: sins. Cover up a lot of sins. All you have to do is be invested, right? The world's changing, right? And so, in the private capital side, there's clearly a lot of capital on the sidelines, right? There's clearly a lot of folks who are waiting for distress to hit the marketplace, and frankly, there's you know an inability to capitalize debt and all the rest. Now that's beginning to settle down; things are beginning to firm up. But there are a lot of folks who are capital allocators who're standing still, right? Because there's no way to get deals done, right? And I think that those folks who can get control of a handful of opportunities that have a little bit of time associated with them, you spend the time, sort of position, get to a better capital marketplace and capitalize it there.
0: You're creating opportunity and connecting a development, like let's say maybe the 70 acre site's a little large and really hard to get done, but something that might have a little meat on the boat needs a little upfront work. You're still investing capital now, but by the time something like that's put together, you're going to be... like, if history repeats itself, you're going to be in a new economic environment that may be more favorable.
1: That That is our belief. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> we, yeah, time will tell.
0: There's no crystal. Time will road. tell.
1: I mean, you can, you're investing high risk, small dollars. High risk, small dollars. That's well said. Try to create an opportunity that you can capitalize all of the markets are better. So, if you're a REIT, and I'll give you a sort of a mirror to this REITs are imperfect. They're not, they're imperfect reflections of retail of, of real estate investment, right? So you are you're being judged on a quarterly basis, and you're basically selling a bond. It's an ever-increasing income stream. And so your incentives around at a one-off real estate level, like what should I do with this particular piece of real estate, sometimes are perverse. They don't sell because they don't want to shrink their their NOI growth unless they can sell and buy at the same time. And so, you would think that a REIT being well-capitalized and having a lot of cash on hand and be able to, to transact on a cash basis would find a lot of opportunity when there's distress. And the challenge with that is that their cost of capital also goes up and down as the market goes up and down, and their ability to sell when the market's up and buy when the market's down is a little bit disconnected. And so- It's a little bit of an imperfect mirror of real estate. so But it does have long dated capital, um, particularly uh, a group that was set up like Federal Realty that had this engine of growth and you had a premium that you received from the market as a result of that. And so we were able to bridge long gaps. And during the... So in 2009, right, I moved up here in 2009. Frankly, because of the Great Recession, we had a lot invested at assembly, and we were able to continue to spend money to move the ball forward and position ourselves to come out of the ground in 2011. Bought it at the depth, delivered it right when rent was growing.
0: Couple years of work to create the opportunity. High risk, low dollars, relatively speaking.
1: Yep, and you had we had plenty of access to that kind of capital. In the marketplace with a REIT. And that's so there's there are differences there and they both have their own relative strengths and weaknesses.
0: Something I learned from you and I I always looked at a down economy or say like we're facing a headwind in the economy right now. There's some volatility in the stock market. It I always thought that put a REIT in a much stronger position to capitalize a project when the private markets were were maybe faced with some challenges, but that's not necessarily the case because if the stock price goes down, they kind of get squeezed themselves, right?
1: Yeah. If you're if a REIT stock price is down, right, they don't necessarily want to issue equity, right? Because the way stock, the way REITs raise a lot of capital is they either issue debt, it's usually corporate balance sheet debt, or they issue new stock. So if their stock price is down, issuing equity at this moment in time is really challenging for them because it's very dilutive to the balance of the, of the shareholders.
0: Which means you need a really strong balance sheet to
1: get something done. Am I reading that right? You have a really strong balance sheet and you typically don't. You don't issue equity in the, in the really low points in the marketplace. Now, what is great about public companies is they're much more efficient in terms of their pricing than the private model. So I think you probably saw read stock prices, you know, tank a year ago, year and a half ago. And they were very volatile on the low end, right? And they're now actually recovering in the marketplace as distress is starting to hit on the private side because the you know as yes. interest rates are starting to settle down. So it's a very quick reflection of what's happening in the financial markets. This is
0: correlated and and, and maybe I'll, I don't know that I'm qualified necessarily to speak on the topic, but something I feel like I learned or was guided on is the stock market doesn't necessarily follow the economy, right? So let's say the, the stock market tanks in anticipation of a recession and then the recession starts to happen and it's not as bad as the markets priced into the cost of, and then so stocks can go up. So in reality, it's kind of, it's anticipatory. The stock market is anticipatory of the economy. And it's kind of priced in before it happens. So it's ahead of the actual economic reaction.
1: Both up and down.
0: Both up and down. Exactly right. So I can't predict. No one can predict the stock market. But that was a, a really interesting thought to me that changed my my view on when to allocate capital and made me a little bit more confident when things maybe aren't necessarily great in economy.
1: That's that's That is true, particularly with REITs. They are much more tied to interest rate changes. It's an instant move based on sentiment. There's a lot there that happens with repricing, particularly as a, as a reflection of real estate. And it just takes forever for real world, real world real estate to move through these sorts of moments in time. The
0: same question, I, I like to close out with all my guests. Could you share your favorite book or podcast with our audience?
1: So, absolutely. I, I I'm a vociferous reader. I have not really picked up the podcast yet, although I did have a friend send me a very interesting podcast in which Scott Galloway was being interviewed, talking about, I think, the challenges that young men face in our society right now. I found that very, very interesting. I actually find Scott Galloway interesting to read and also what he says. I'll have to check that out. My favorite books are, you know, I really like Herman Hesse. I don't know if you've ever read him as an author. I really like him. I'm familiar so those are two authors. Herman Hess is more of a full philosophical full philosopher reiner. He's written a couple books. My favorites there are Steppenwolf is one and a book called The Glass Beat Game. There, and then I like Ayn Rand. I really believe in those their philosophies and they're built on the on the philosophy of doing things, personal choice, personal responsibility. I find that to be a great way. You're a lifelong
0: learner, Dallin. I I personally seek out uh, lifelong learners in my life. Philosophy, psychology, those are topics in my earlier days I dismissed as important and now I've come to appreciate and look to those as like some of the most important concepts that you continue to expose yourself to because it raises awareness and judgment. And in today's world, those two things are paramount. Don, I I wish you, Chris and Tim, nothing but the best with HG80. I personally am excited to see what you guys can create. Thank you for being a part of design development.
1: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Enjoy the conversation, guys. Thanks a bunch.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Design Development. Real quick before you leave, our goal is to help as many people as possible. We're a growing community and you're a big part of it. So just click that send button. Send this episode to a friend to let them get those same insights that you got today. We appreciate you. See you next time.